welcome to Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it's Friday, January 4th, 2019. Happy New Year if you celebrate the New Year and all of that. I was not here last week, so big thanks to Pam for uh, stepping in and playing a previous episode. I meant to be here. I was a little bit under the weather and couldn't quite be here, and that's quite all right. I was planning to do a good things that actually happened in 2018, and there were there were a lot of strikes that happened and other positive events that took place. So I wanted to like just focus on that as a reminder that there are positive things that are happening and a lot of folks doing a lot of really important work that, and that have been doing it for a very long time. So unfortunately, we were unable to do it. However, it was I have to admit it was nice to have a little bit of time off, a nice little break. Today on the show, it's somewhat planned. We may or may not have guests in person and or calling in. Uh, I will be here. I'll be playing some music. Start off with the B-52s, and I think subconsciously, well, running a little bit late as per usual on Fridays, and sometimes I have I pick out the music ahead of time, and there's a two playlists that I have in my mind of other songs I'd like to play, other artists I'd like to play, and if I don't have a chance to go through it ahead of time, I have to pick what I'm feeling in the moment, and I felt like playing the B-52s, and I think that goes back to New Year's 1990. I believe they played on some television New Year's event, and I remember my father saying, hey, I think you'll like this band, and I was like nine, (laughs) and uh, I did like them, and I do like them. So thinking back to New Year's 1990, (laughs) quite a while ago, when I first, to my knowledge, heard the B-52s. Okay, so we're broadcasting live in San Francisco, and we're on Ohlone land, and I mentioned that. I've been wanting to mention that the past few months that we've been on the air as a reminder of the land that we're on. And it's important to understand history, especially when a lot of it is not taught and or not talked about or misinformation is taught in schools and or by media, politicians, etc. There's a lot of... It seems like one really has to dig to find what what actually is the truth and or listen to some voices that are not amplified as as often as they should be. So (sighs) wanting to acknowledge that. And I'm going to go into playing a documentary because I'm still clearly getting my words together. I'm wanting to speak more slowly and clearly, and I'm still waking up a bit. I'm also coffee-free for three weeks or so. I don't know how this happened. I used to drink coffee every day. I like it a lot. And uh, I made the mistake of having a very large cup of coffee in the afternoon uh, a few weeks ago. And it's not good for insomnia to drink coffee late at night, for me anyway. So it's like, oh, maybe I'll hold off for a little bit. And for some reason that when I decide, oh, I'm going to stop doing something for a little bit, it ends up taking quite a while. So I'm not quite caffeinated this morning. And perhaps that explains the the flow of the show. Anyway, I am waking up. I am here. I am present. I really do appreciate folks for listening in. Perhaps it's your first time listening in. Perhaps you've listened before. Thanks for coming back. I can't guarantee I won't get angry during the show, especially if we bring up news items and things that are happening in the world and people in positions of power who make life difficult. However, there will also be some really positive things and information that we can share and grow on, etc. 
So I wanted to start off by playing a documentary that I uh, uh, was shown recently. And folks can find it on YouTube. So you're welcome to listen to the audio now. And you can also watch the, the video on YouTube. We posted it on the weekly review page, which you can get to by going to Evil Facebook, which is actually Facebook, but I still call it Evil because I know there's a lot of good that comes of it. And also just, I mean, if oh, I, I, I try not to think, well, what if, what if, because then we could keep on going back further and further and further and what ifs. But it's if folks were more community minded and weren't bootlickers, then maybe Facebook would be a much different place. Anyway. Uh, that's where our, that's where our, we, we share our news articles. If you go to facebook.com forward slash weekly rev, I've been taking some time off social media and I have to say it's been great for my mental health. I recognize that for some folks it can be helpful. Some folks can be harmful. Some folks, a combination of both. I feel like for me it, it is, I find a lot of information that way connected to a lot of folks and I really appreciate it. And at the same time, the, the week or so when I wasn't checking it at all, I felt great. So I am going to continue to see what I can do to monitor my usage. The show is not about me. It's about presenting news and information. So without further ado, this is Mawekma Ohlone Tribe Back from Extinction, and you can find this on YouTube. It's about 32 minutes long, and it was published by Mawekma Ohlone, and Mawekma is spelled M-U-W-E-K-M-A. So I will get everything all set up here, and we will begin uh, playing this documentary. And this is from 1994. The Mawekmas are different from any other cultural race. Um, we, uh, for example, we have a uh, a history of 10,000 years old. Our holy lands we still reside on. Our people in uh, that call themselves the, the Moekmas, the East Bay uh, families, have never ever uh, left their lands. They have um, made it a, a way of life to migrate within their own aboriginal lands. And the difference is they didn't migrate into California or into the Bay Area. They have always been here for generation after generation. I can remember being in school and saying, oh no, all the Ohlone's are dead. There's no such thing. And I hope to God that if I ever have children that my kid doesn't sit in class and be told by uh, an educated person that they don't exist. Oh, we, yeah, ho. 
Highway construction at the junction of highways 101 and 85 in San Jose, California, has led to the location of an Ohlone Indian burial ground over 2,000 years old. In the 1920s, the Mawekma Ohlone tribe of the San Francisco Bay region had been declared extinct for all practical purposes by prominent anthropologist Alfred Krober. They no longer existed as an Aboriginal people. Yet living members of the Mawekma Ohlone tribe now walk behind the bulldozers monitoring their progress so they can mark the grave sites before the earth movers destroy them. Whenever there is, is work going on in anywhere in the state of California and that uh, which may uh, run into some prehistoric burials, that is burials of the indigenous peoples, uh, there's a requirement that those burials be treated uh, archaeologically, respectfully, and, and according to the needs of the Native Americans that are the, the descendants of these people. Before they had monitors, e even though we had the law that says if you came across a, a burial that you had to stop and inform certain people, the fact is that it's expensive. And so in many cases, construction people or contractors, whatever, would avoid, either just ignore the fact that they came across the burial. Despite past negligence by freeway contractors, the Mawek Maloney have worked out a cooperative relationship with these highway construction crews. The operators that use the scrapers and the graders are very sensitive. They're looking out along with us, looking for the burials and the mortars and pestles and any other objects of Indian, we have uh, already described to them what to look for and they are looking out for it. Um, they go real slow, we can, we can follow them, we stake it, they don't mind going around us when we're digging out there, so everything's pretty cool. We're walking behind the tractors monitoring and looking for bones and when we spot bones, um, we call the, uh, our archaeologist, the one uh, that works with us, and uh, she comes and identifies the bones, whether it's Indian bone or animal bone. The Mawek Maloney participating in the excavation of their ancestors' remains are one of the first Indian tribes to act as their own archaeologists. In the process, they are discovering who they were and who they are today. They are laying claim to their heritage. Yet they're also doing much more, for they are in the process of seeking federal reinstatement and recognition that they still exist as a tribe, that the Ohlone did not vanish with the bones they have uncovered. of their ancestral remains elicits a broad range of reaction from members of the Mawekma tribe. I have mixed emotions here about this. I, uh, I don't like having to do this, but it has to be done because they've been disturbed already. I hope that uh, when we put them back in the ground in this area that they will be put back and never, never again disturbed. When we have uncovered the uh, uh, animal remains, uh, it, it's 
it, it's neat to know that, that back in, in that culture also that, that the animal played an important part, just as animal play still plays an important part. Maybe not like some people have birds, cats, dogs. These people had what? Otters. Mm -hmm. um, the, the deer that we found. Right. The dog. The wolf. And it's just, they still played respect to the animals. Wondrous thing was when they found the uh, one burial with the, the beads and uh, the pendant. Oh, this remember, that was that was that was really something to see. And the teeth on these people—they oh, have no they cavities. Just, beautiful teeth. I mean, if we could trade our teeth in for those <laughs> teeth, <laughs> beautiful teeth. We. Probably more than we already have. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's been an honor at my age to be doing this. I have seen a lot of corpus in my young days when I was in the service to come and do this. I never dreamed that I would one day I'd be doing this to another human being discovering all this bones, so I don't know, I feel thrilled, I don't know, real full of joy doing it. I don't fear nothing on, on this, what I'm doing. Like I talk to him, if I disturb one of the little bones, tell him I'm sorry, because that's the best I can do. The Mawek Maloney have hired two archaeologists, Laura Jones and Alan Leventhal, to help them learn the excavation process and interpret what they have found. It's about, I'd say, three and a half feet below the burials. Below three and a half to four feet below the burials. But you remember that other burn feature we had, there was baked clay, you know, a foot and a half, two feet thick. Right. And here we just have this really thin lens of it. Anthropology students and faculty from San Jose State University, located nearby, have been invited by the tribe to visit the site. What can you see up there in the corner? Over there. And the scapula, you mean? The right scapula, right? A little bit of the clavicle. All right. And what do we have over here? Well, the left arm was just raised up, like almost like it was trying to lift it. All right, well, here's the left arm. Mm -hmm. What's this over here? The sternum, you mean, or the, the rib cage in the front? Well, there's the radius over here. Oh, from what? The other side. The other side, yes. Yeah, it has to be. No, this is left arm. This. Over here, you have the radius. The right arm coming this, down. This is the right humerus and the right arm, right. As the Mawek Maloney have become involved in the excavation process, a new relationship has developed between themselves and the anthropologists who once controlled access to their heritage. Anthropologists at one time helped play a significant role in declaring the Mawek Maloney extinct because the Ohlones they encountered were no longer culturally pure, but rather had been transformed by the impact of the missions. They also intermarried and lived in an urban environment. One of the major problems in the anthropological discipline, something that is now finally becoming um, a, a thing of the past, is this notion of pristine, untouched, or isolated tribal peoples. Um, particularly with respect to Native Americans, this has been a problem. Anthropologists search for the pristine, and anything that they find that doesn't fit into their fiction 
into their kind of fairy tale of what pristine, untouched, isolated peoples should be is disregarded or even worse, made into uh, a justification for declaring a tribal people extinct. This is what happened to the Muwekma and to the Ohlone people and to other Central Californian and other um, Pacific Coastal peoples, is that by the time anthropologists got to them, they no longer could provide the information that anthropologists wanted. And for that reason, peoples like the Muwekma were declared extinct, were marginalized in anthropology, um, and unfortunately, this played a part in their political margin. Les Field, one of several anthropological consultants to the Mowak Maloney, feels the implications of being declared extinct and therefore unrecognized means the Mowak Maloney are denied federal support in terms of land and other economic resources which other tribes receive. The political implications of being declared extinct have to do with the fact that the federal government never wanted to ratify any of the treaties that it was supposed to supposed to sign, those treaties allocating a certain portion, or something like 8.5 million acres of the state to Native American peoples. The federal government was unwilling to do this under pressure from the most powerful uh, political and economic elites in the state around the time of statehood and during the latter half of the 19th century. So when you have anthropologists come at the end of the 19th century saying this tribe is extinct, this tribe is extinct, this tribe is extinct. It provides an academic and, and professional kind of polished justification for denying people political and economic rights. The tribe was terminated by Superintendent L.A. Dorrington, an employee of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in 1927. However, the families were enrolled a few years later under the California Jurisdictional Act of 1928 as Costanoan Indians by the same bureau that terminated them. Landless and marginalized by the BIA, the families were still able to maintain ties with each other, which enabled them to survive as an identifiable group until today. Rosemary Cambra, tribal chair of the Mowak Maloney, feels that working to preserve the burial sites has enhanced the tribe's sense of identity and community. Many of us uh, just recently have begun to, to acknowledge and, and, and to befriend one another as second cousins, third cousins, and, and partially because of the burial issue. Uh, we all have a sense of belonging, being, and, and wanting uh, to, to unite as, as families. Um, and we all come from different lineages. So in many respects, if it wasn't for the, for the people of the past, we would not be communicating today as living people. Once the remains are uncovered, the Ohlone number the site. Then the remains are carefully identified and put into bags where they will stay until the construction project is finished and they can be reburied. There is also the possibility for further analysis of the remains in an archaeology lab at San Jose State University. This issue leads to a series of meetings as members of the Mawekma tribe and non-tribal Native Americans gather to debate and decide what will happen to the bones of their ancestors. 
Some non-tribal members do not want any further analysis of their ancestors' remains. But to allow it to go past the excavation and the reburial process, to me, seems like ex exploitation on my end. I don't know if it's being narrow-minded or not, but I really don't feel that any ex extended um, analysis or um, any more, how would I say, trying to find out the mysteries of life. We all know that people were tortured at one time or another. We all know that we died. We all know that we're going to die ourselves. I, you know, I don't know whether that's going to help me understand what happened to my people. Other members of the tribe feel further analysis is a logical extension of the excavation process. When you start to actually work, there's some type of communication going on with you and that individual that you are excavating, yeah. because you're doing it as just as delicately and with as much respect as you can. And as you, and when you can and when you go down from one and you're already hitting almost a hundred, I mean there are so many things that are going in your mind because we all found something different and it was like, well, come and see. You know, we all shared, and because of that sharing, it brought it brought me to this level today to say, yes, I do want analysis because I want to know when I was working. Well, why was that like that, or why was this this way, or you know, the question started to evolve, and now I see here and I say yes now I can go into the lab I, I you know I'm being allowed okay well let's go in there and let's work and now I see a whole new pattern again of well the questions will come as I start to work again just like they did when you first started with the with the removals ultimately the Mawek Maloney supported by representatives from neighboring tribes voted to approve further analysis at San Jose State University Yet the excavation process did more than teach the Ohlone about their own heritage. It brought them in contact with various state agencies who have had to approve their participation at each stage along the way. By acknowledging that the Mawek Maloney are capable of doing their own archeology, span these agencies have indirectly legitimated the existence of the Ohlone as an Indian people. The implications of, of Muwekma Ohlone people, the four generations of Muwekma Ohlone people who worked at the Highway 101-85 project, are a kind of step-by-step -step reversal of the whole process of disenfranchisement that we're studying right now. That disenfranchisement ended up with the extinction sentence. When Muwekma Ohlone people go to the archaeological excavation sites, sites and do the excavation and do the interpretation, they are removing that first major roadblock, i.e. they're laying claim to their past. They're saying, here we are, in the flesh, laying claim to our past by doing the excavation. By doing that, in cooperation and collaboration with public agencies like the Department of Transportation, State of California, the county, the city, they establish the professional relationships that make that laying claim to the past a highly politicized and political act. In other words, they are saying, we're here, we know about our past, we're finding out about our past, and we're doing so as a part of a political community. By doing that, they lay the foundation for federal acknowledgement because they establish their history and they do so in a publicly acknowledged context. In addition to their contact at the excavation site with Caltrans, the State Department of Transportation, 
the Moek Maloney also became involved with the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors because the excavation site took place within their jurisdiction and tax dollars were used for the analysis process. At a minimum, what our obligation was, was to respect the uh, history, culture, and religion of Native Americans who were citizens of our uh, county. And the obvious way to do that was to bring in Native Americans in our county into the process in a way that wasn't just window dressing, but real, that called the shots, that was important. And with that was uh, a requirement for uh, respect of, of tradition and of individuals. So we organized, and it was a, it was a partnership uh, between the county and, and local family. Uh, the monitoring that was important and the ability to um, to take control of the scene so that uh, the religious rights could be respected and not imposed or interfered with by outsiders because uh, we'd run into a situation where archaeologists were trying to say you know what should happen and it's really none of their business it's you know whose relatives are they not mine not the archaeologists it's it's just like I, I think I remember one board meeting saying you know would we allow this if it were you know a Catholic cemetery of course not the best method that's been developed by um, skeletal experts in the last hundred years is this piece of the body right here and there's one on each side and it goes through these gradual changes that um, have been uh, systematized to give us an indication of how old people are. In fact, Involvement of the Mawek Maloney in analysis of the remains of their ancestors helped change their relationship with San Jose State University. I feel very comfortable being at the university um, because I know that, that it's a partnership now. And, and this partnership is like you the scholar that has the knowledge and then like just uh, us being the Native American and just um, knowing that if I've got questions I can ask you you know with, with as far as like why is this bone like this or why is this like this and then for my part is like when we did the excavating excavations was that God, you know, what kind of life did this person have, you know, when you're sitting there thinking and you're looking out, you know, and now you can come back and say, well, you know, how old was this person? Um, what kind of diseases were there? And, and they will be answered because they're right here in front of us now. No, no, you've got to respond uh, really uh, positively, you know, to that notion of partnership because... Maybe one reason that for the last 10 or 15 years we've been building the bridges, but not as successfully as we have in the last year and a half or so, is that there was an unequal, uh, in a sense, distribution of power, an unequal sense of relationship. If the university reached out to the Indian community, it was like the university saying, well, you people need us and here we are. But what actually happened here was the Indian community came to us as an equal and said, we need to work together. And yes, we may need you, but the university needs us too. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is why it's a partnership, because partnerships aren't 80% one side and 20% the other. Partnerships are 50-50. And I really have a very strong sense of that. And I think when you walk in here, you feel that way too. Yeah. You're not 
uh, second-class citizens on this campus. As uh, Ohlone family members have, have worked at the university, they have come to understand that uh, archaeologists and physical anthropologists aren't just grave robbers, that uh, while our perspectives are not always 100% uh, in agreement with, or maybe a better way to say it, 100% parallel to those of uh, the descendants themselves is that many of our interests are um, reinforcing to the kinds of things they want to know and many of the things they want to know are uh, collaborative and compatible with the kinds of uh, scientific studies that we at San Jose State are pursuing. Um, so the interaction particularly interaction once the excavations have been completed on this project where the family members have been here working on the archaeological materials, uh, watching us and, and in some cases helping with the analysis of the human skeletal material as well, uh, has helped uh, shatter some of the stereotypes. As the Mawak Maloney gain increasing recognition from various governmental bodies and agencies, as well as the general public, they help build a case for their federal reinstatement and acknowledgement. Yet their efforts to seek acknowledgement also face opposition from already recognized tribes who see the Ohlone's existence as a threat to whatever limited funds are now available to Indian peoples. The misperception um, that the pie is shrinking and that everyone should watch their own interest and that the interest of one tribe or the interest of federally recognized tribes are not the same as the interest of unacknowledged and terminated tribes. Personally, I feel that that's wrong and that's an error. I really think that the interest of California Indian tribes lies in gaining the most political power that they can gain. And the more California Indian tribal governments there are, the more the power is increased. Because each California Indian tribal government brings with it tribal resources, human resources, cultural resources, and all sorts of power and resources that should enrich the California Indian tribal community. It shouldn't take from it, it should enrich it. Lena Aoki, legislative aide to Senator Enoe of Hawaii, feels all California tribes will gain more political leverage in Washington by seeing each other as allies rather than competitors. To the extent that federally recognized tribes are located in a limited number of congressional districts, that limits their effectiveness, so to speak, of trying to push their issues forward in Congress. So the more congressional districts in California that have federally recognized tribes as constituents, the more powerful the voice of California Indian tribal governments can be. We chose in the wrong people like a UI Yushkia. Going to Hogan and Honkash and Petula Hochichi, Hochet Honkashila, Wakantranka Unshimakila, Honyokati Maki. In a step in that direction, an intertribal recognition ceremony honors the Mawekma Ohlone. 
somebody who has contributed a lot and I don't believe has ever gotten the recognition that she has deserved uh, is uh, a woman that I have the honor of, of introducing, and that's uh, Rosemary Cambra. Roseberry is a member of uh, the Mwekma uh, Ohlone's uh, tribe. Uh, she has been active in, in San Jose much longer uh, than most of us uh, who, uh, who are here today. Uh, she has she has worked very, very closely uh, with the city and the county and has taught us all a lot, not the least of which has been set, uh, to be more sensitive and how we uh, uh, treat those people who came before us. Uh, she has worked closely with the agency in the city on uh, seeing that people uh, whose remains had to be relocated were done so in a very uh, sensitive, proper way. And uh, uh, she has uh, become a friend of mine, uh, a woman that I have admired for a long, long time. And I believe we're real lucky, Rosemary, that you're a member of our community and uh, we are a member of your community. You came a long time before we did, 10,000 years ago. Uh, so it's my honor and privilege to get to introduce to all of you uh, Rosemary Cambra and thank her for her efforts. Thank you, Mayor. As I've been introduced, Rosemary Cambra, the chairwoman of the Mowek Maloney tribe, indigenous to this area. Believe it or not, it has taken 10,000 years to come to this very day of being acknowledged. And for me, it's a very important step, as well as for the mayor and for many other politicians. It is a time now to bridge all families, all cultures, and all nations. If we don't do it here, we may look at another South Africa. So this is the beginning, and uh, we have a lot to continue to, to work on, but most of all, for the young children, for you that are present today from, from the schools, we want you to understand and to believe that we want to be your partner. Our children want to dance with you, not away from you, but with you. Two years after excavation of the remains of the Mawekma Ohlone ancestors, they are reburied under a nearby freeway. Meanwhile, living members of the tribe continue to seek official recognition that they still exist as a people.
and welcome back. That was the Mwekma Ohlone tribe back from extinction, and you can check out that documentary on YouTube. Also, for more information, please do check out muwekma.org, and that's M-U-W-E-K-M-A.org, and there's lots more information there. We're going to take a bit of a music break and be back with our guest in just a little bit. You're listening to the Weekly Review on Mutiny Radio. Stay tuned.
All right, and welcome back to the Weekly Review. I am joined by Shanti Singh, who is the co-chair of the San Francisco DSA. Shanti, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Yay. So I've been following a lot of what the DSA has been up to this past year, especially being involved with there was the, the hotel worker strike and the DSA showing up for that, and then also with the Occupy ICE uh <laughs> activity as well yeah we've been so. we've been we've been doing a lot of stuff we have um you know we also we tried we not tried we did uh three ballot propositions this year so we were part of the coalition on prop c which was our city our home yeah um even some of our members we even were involved in the the old prop c with child free child care and stuff um but also the the two big ones that we really did like that we spearheaded were proposition f which is right to counsel for tenants facing eviction oh yeah and then the no on age campaign which was uh stopping uh, the police from having zero accountability over teasers. <sighs> uh, we didn't think we were going to beat them, but mm-hmm. we did by 20 points. And that was pretty, that was pretty great. Um, but of course we just do a lot of base building and coalition work and stuff like that and supporting labor, occupying ice, all of that good stuff. Yeah. Well, it's, it's great when organizations have the people power to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're 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 still we're still growing. Um, I think we got a little bit of a bump after Prop F. It, it's interesting. A lot of the the DSA membership bumps that like people get though, that different chapters get, it's often a lot of it's it's related to things that happen more nationally and not necessarily locally. Mm. Um, that's something we found. So, for example, we got a bump. We don't know if our bump was related to Prop F or winning, or whether it was Alexandria Ocasio Cortez winning because it happened at the same time. Yeah. Um, I know there was like a little bit of bump when some folks in DC DSA showed up at that restaurant and protested Kirsten Nielsen oh, right. and security. Oh. Um, but yeah, it tends to be related to that. So I don't, I don't know how much, I don't know how much our SF activities are creating bumps in membership, but I like to think that they are. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. I know there's also, there's the, the East Bay, uh, DSA, which is, I know it's different. Yeah. Dif- of, different organizing styles. Yeah. Um, I think they, I think we each have, they have, a, they're, they're slightly bigger than us, but you know, the East Bay is a, a bigger area than yeah. stuff. So I think we're both over a thousand members, I believe. Oh, okay. Or right about there or slightly above. Great. So what's, um, in the, is there anything in the works that's happening like currently that folks can plug into if they're interested in participating or. Oh yeah. All sorts of, all sorts of stuff. Um, one thing that I would really like to plug is, um, we have a sort of a little task force, but we're organizing around a couple issues, um, with allies in Bayview Hunters Point. Oh yeah. Um, specifically two big things. One, um, is the buds for Bayview campaign. So Essentially, what's going on is, I mean, Bayview has, you know, I think it receives something on the order of 8 or 10% of the city's homelessness funding, but I believe it has something like 30% of the city's homeless people, obviously majority black community. Um, and, you know, the majority of homeless folks in San Francisco are black or a dispropor- incredibly disproportionate amount are. Um, and they just haven't really received the funding or the resources or the attention that they need. Mm-hmm. And what they really want, and they have the people to do it, um, there's a woman named Gwendolyn Westbrook who's been running a shelter called uh, a Mother Brown's, like a center. But, you know, it, they don't have the resources that they need, and the city's not giving it to them, um, which is really shameful. So, you know, they, they have, there's so many, they're serving so many folks that there are people sometimes sleeping in chairs. Um, and there's been a community demand for a shelter that's yes. actually run by residents for the baby that actually has these extensive resources. And, you know, the city's had some talk about putting in some sort of navigation center there, but again, it's not, they don't want to factor in any sort of community demands and mm. community run shelter. Um, 
so we're trying to support them and pushing that demand forward. Um, the other thing, of course, is the the huge scandal at the Hunters Point shipyard, which is, yeah. I mean, just a just a turducken of problems. You know, you have the the nuclear imperialism of having a bikini atoll tests and, and and taking those ships to back to the shipyard to to scrub down all this radioactive material. You have the gentrification aspect, of course, um, from the standpoint of you know there now there's a huge condo project, a ton of politicians and people have been like all the way up have been the whole city has been invested in making this condo project happen with Lenara, which is this huge developer five point and, and you know like no one from the city official side the many city officials been lying about it mm. um you know that just came out in the chronicle about saying it's completely safe obviously oh. the there's the navy's involved this contractor falsified soil samples so it's still radioactive but most importantly the community's been the community's been dying of, of mysterious cancers for decades and yeah. no one gave a shit until no one no one gave a shit until they put this fucking condo project here mm-hmm. which most of the communities it's it's there's some affordable units but always of course it's a fraction of the total right, right. so they've been selling this condo stuff and you know they've just been trying to make it not look like a big deal for so so fucking long until finally it's reached the point i think i heard that banks have stopped a few banks have stopped lending for like folks who want to buy homes there because they're like shit there's still radioactive stuff here but um really trying to bring that i mean that's like that's that's a huge uh, that should be the biggest news in the city like people should be talking about that every day it, it just it baffles my mind that, that people aren't working on that so those are those are two big things i think dsa is really pushing on um in the new year and has been kind of trying to prepare for it and, and meet up with folks and see what support we can provide to groups on the ground yeah yeah that's that's a lot for sure yeah, yeah. So. but we always have stuff going on i mean we have i think 20 committees or something oh like wow yeah what are what so what are what would different committees be so there would be like so um there's you know there's internal committees for people who just want to help out on like you know there's like a tech committee um you know there's an outreach or mobilizer committee that it, so that's that's all like sort of more internal organization but then on issue we have issue-based committees so housing justice which is like you know uh, mass incarceration and abolitionism and then um you know uh, environmental justice a homelessness committee um we have a discourse committee we have yeah so it's 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 pretty it's pretty broad there's lots of places that you can plug in but there's like basically issue based and we're always we're always doing more stuff on all of those fronts that's great so that means that folks could kind of plug in and see which like area interests them the most or maybe they have more experience or resources. right right like if you know if you're interested in getting involved in immigration rights we mm-hmm. have the immigration rights international solidarity group we have a direct action working group we have all of that stuff so oh that's great it's just good to have that so you have like a core group, core groups of people planning stuff but it's not it's not broken out where like people only do one thing or another yeah yeah, yeah i think yeah, also yeah. just i mean everything is connected and there's a, probably a lot of overlap as well oh yeah yeah exactly so you know there's a lot of for example with the baby hunters point thing like there's not there's not one committee doing that it's a right. housing issue it's an environmental justice issue it's an anti-racist issue it's um so yeah that that's an example there cool yeah yeah well and also just congrats on prop c that was like oh thank you uh i mean there were definitely a lot of different propositions that i think many of us were concerned about and working on and that was one that in particular was really i'm really grateful that that one passed yeah and that was i mean i mean again we were part of a really broad coalition but i know that a lot of dsa folks like i'm very grateful to them who really stepped up when we thought that it wasn't going to get enough signatures to get on the ballot in time Mm -hmm. And that was because of some really 
frankly fucked up shit that was going on down in, in Mountain View. Um, so in my day job, I work at Tenants Together, which does rent control advocacy and organizing support for tenants unions across the state. Mm-hmm. So uh, we knew that in Mountain View, uh, these uh, the landlord lobby was trying to put get signatures on the ballot to repeal rent control that they have there that we were also that we helped pass in 2016 yeah um so uh so yeah and i think silicon valley dsa was involved in trying to to, trying to fight them on that but essentially these landlords were paying all the signature gatherers in the bay area Mm -hmm. like 40 dollars per signature like usually like four or five you can pay they're charging them 40 dollars per signature to try to get this shit on the ballot they didn't for 2018 thankfully they did get it for 2020 unfortunately but um but yeah they managed to the the silicon valley dsa and the mountain view tenants coalition stopped them but in the meantime, we're up here trying to collect signatures for our city, our home, and all, all these signature gatherers like, oh, fuck, I'm going to Mountain View. I mean, it makes sense. It's $40 a signature is like absolutely unheard of. So uh, DSA really like stepped up and, and gathered the signatures, but it was like a big campaign with lots of people in it. Um, there was a lot of there were a lot of pressure, you know, we applied a lot of pressure, I think, to, to tech companies, mm-hmm. um, or rather we're trying to spread the information to tech employees. So yes. like, you know, we had folks standing in front of the tech offices at like square and stripe and, you know, kind of explaining here's prop C, do you know that your, yeah. your CEO like opposes it and it's putting your company that your company put money against it. Like yeah. that should not be allowed without the permission of the employees. Yeah. Like you should fight for that. And then maybe you should get a union. Somehow they managed to fit this into a uh, little, little flyer quarter sheet so um yeah that was kind of like people were really involved in our campaigns and a lot of dsa members were some dsa members were even on the staff of that campaign um it was looking a little it was uh, you know that there was the whole benioff thing which i mean i know dsa was not going to be able to pay for a plane to fly around the sky so i guess that was yeah but um, it was kind of, it was a little bit like the way this got framed as tech billionaires versus tech billionaires kind of sucked, frankly, but it was, a, it was a really great campaign and, and it was cool to see such a broad coalition. And I, I think that it would have been, you know, it needed to secure, it, it could pass with a 50 plus one and got 60%, mm-hmm. but to be lawsuit proof, it would have had to have been two thirds right. and it was five points away. Uh. You know, definitely if, if the, if the powers that be, if the folks like London Breed, Scott Wiener, David Chu, uh, et cetera, yeah. if those fucking guys had supported it, then, you know, I'm pretty confident it would have just sailed right past that threshold. Too. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, two questions going back when you're talking with some of the folks who worked at the tech companies, were folks easily swayed, um, by, Surprisingly, I mean, in terms of what in terms of what I heard from from people who were doing that, uh, yeah, actually, um, I think a lot of folks just didn't know what was going on. Yeah, you know, I don't know how many people are going to go and try to like advocate for like a union or anything like yeah. that. Although, you know, hopefully there are folks like Tech Workers Coalition and mm-hmm. there are DSA members who belong to that who are trying to support that work more and more. But yeah, I think I think people just didn't know what was going on. But then when they said, "Oh, tax the richest companies," even then when they worked there, tax the richest companies to a little bit to like less than the Trump tax cut they got back to fund all this homelessness housing. I think it was pretty, it was pretty compelling. I, th- I think the majority of people just didn't didn't have a clue that that was going on yeah. or that it was their boss right doing it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then follow up in terms of so it would, would have needed the two thirds vote in order to be law proof. Yeah. So what's do you have any sense of what's happening next down the line in terms of facing any lawsuits? Um, so I think, uh, there's definitely going to be one. Um, it was, it was very, <laughs> I, you know, like, I don't, I can't imagine. 